morning, church. It is great to sing with you, to hear you sing, to hear the truths of God's word uh, proclaimed through song and through prayer, and now we get the privilege to hear God's word. As we turn now to Matthew chapter 9, as J.D. mentioned, this is the last sermon in our vision series, and the title of today is Proclaiming and Portraying the Gospel by the Poor to the Poor. Proclaiming and Portraying the Gospel by the Poor to the Poor. So I invite you to turn Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through 38. And while you're turning there, um, the whole month of January was meant to be a time when we emphasize our daily need to rest in Jesus. And so if you have not started reading your Bible daily, every day is a good day to start. So we encourage you this week uh, to just pick up the Bible. You can join the TCC Bible Reading Plan. You dive right in to the book of Ephesians. We'll be in this week. And so encourage you just to dive right in there. Um, and one of the verses that we are seeking to memorize, one verse a month as a church family, this month's verse is Isaiah 40, verse 8. And this is why we read, because the word of God says this, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. I encourage you to commit that to your heart when you wake up and you don't want to open the Bible, when you feel like you're just, it's not worth the energy, remember, everything else we pursue will fade, the word of the Lord will stand forever. And that leads me to... Where we're headed, and that is, uh, if today is the last day in our vision series, we start next Sunday. Pastor Ron Jure will kick us off in the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes, and the subtitle of that is, What Do We Gain? What Do We Gain? And so, I can tell you that we will find out that life on this earth is actually not all meaninglessness, but it is temporary. And Pastor Ron Jure is going to help us consider that question what do we gain from all that we pursue and strive for in this life? What do we gain? So it's so relevant for today. I encourage you to come, invite a friend, and I can't wait to be stirred by God's word, not only today, but next week as we dive into Ecclesiastes. So let's look at Matthew chapter 9. Hopefully you were there. If you're there, say I'm there. Okay, that's pretty good participation. I won't shame you like I normally do. Um, yeah, okay, I heard more participation later. Yes, it's good to have in phases. Okay, Matthew chapter 9, here we go. We're going to read the word and pray. This is the word of God. This will stand forever. The Bible says, Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, And Jesus went through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray. Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Let me pray. Father, we stop right now and we ask. We ask that you would settle our hearts. We ask that you would quiet all distractions. 
we ask that you would center our minds, attentions, and our hearts, affections on Jesus. Please, Father, I pray that you would help us in this moment to hear from you. And so we plead that your Holy Spirit would move and change us from the inside out. For those who do not know Jesus, Father, I pray a special prayer for them today. That they would be changed, completely reoriented in their affections. And they would trust and surrender their hearts wholly to you. And I pray that as followers of Jesus, we too would walk in those ways. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I remember growing up hearing this sentence. It's not just what you say, it's how you say it. I tell you, as a kid, that frustrated the mess out of me. And as a parent, it's gold. I love it. So, you know, perspective is uh, a lot here. It's not just what you say, it's how you say it. So, you know, you get down from the dinner table. What do you say? Thank you. Or... Thanks. You know, there's a difference. Same words, different tone. Attitude is an issue, right? Like somebody says, thank you with that sassy attitude. You say, whoa, 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 let's back up the bus. Let's start again. What do we say? Thank you. That's right. Because it's not just what you say, it's how you say it. And it's not just what you do, it's how you do it. If you have a student in school... And your encouragement is, I think you can make an A on this. You can make an A. Let's make an A on this. And then they come back and they say, hey, I made an A. How'd you do that? I cheated. And you're like, okay, that's not what I was talking about. Because it matters not only what you do, it matters how you do it. Same with cleaning the dishes. Our house, that can be a wholly wonderful moment. And it can be mostly chaos because you can clean the dishes, but you can also clean the dishes and yell at your brothers and sisters, mostly about how they're not carrying their load. Do I get an amen, kids in the room? Okay, yeah, uh uh-huh, that's right. So it's not just what you do, it's how you do it. You can play a sport and you can do really well in the sport, but you can do it in such a way that you only think about yourself, you are rude to your teammates, you are arrogant towards the adults. And I don't care if you score, I don't care if your team wins by 50, you've lost. Because it's not just what you do, it's how you do it that matters. Lessons in our home are let's be faithful in the small things, we'll trust God with the outcome. Or a lesson in our home is obey all the way, right away, with a happy heart. That's the aim. That's the aim. Now, just to comfort your heart, I didn't get this from some secret good coaching book or from, you know, newest, latest study in parenting techniques. It comes from the Bible. When Paul looks at us and says, work as unto the Lord, it's not enough to just be a hard worker. It's how you work. Do you work with a greedy heart or a content one? Do you work with a frustrated attitude or a kind demeanor? That matters to Jesus. He says, God loves a cheerful giver. Yes, we should give. But Jesus cares just as much about the disposition of the heart that says, this is yours. 
thank you. Thank you for the provision. It's not just what you do, it's how you do it. Jesus is after our hearts. And so he's not only after right actions, he is after a right heart. Now, we need to combine that idea with where we were last week, and it'll set the the railroad tracks for where we're headed today. So it's not only what you do or what you say, it's how you do it and say it. But last week, we also talked about how does Jesus see the church? How does he view the church? And we talked about four main ideas. Jesus sees the church as a group of people, messy, but they've been changed and they're now one. He sees them as an intertwined people. And he sees them as a loved family. So he sees them, you, Treasuring Christ Church, as messy as we all are. You've been changed by Jesus. He loves you. And he sees you as a loved family. That has implications. Implication number one is believe that you're loved. Implication two is there's no room for us to not love the church. We love what Jesus loves because we follow Jesus. Acknowledging all the mess and all the pain, our disposition is love. We also talked about how Jesus sees the church as it's a joyful privilege to be a part of this love family. He even describes that our joy is deepened and it's contingent upon us being a part of the people of God. It will only be full so far as we are a part of the people of God. And then, last one, he said that we, are a, we have a sustained respons- a responsibility, a supplied responsibility. And what does that mean? It means our, our family, we got a job to do. We got a job to do. There is obedience. There's a following that God calls us to do. And I summarized it in a sentence that I adapted from my friend Nathan Knight in D.C. And the sentence is this. The church is a regular gathering of Christ-treasuring people who agree together to be and make disciples who proclaim the gospel, protect the gospel, and portray the gospel. What is, what does God promise? I'll give you everything that you need to do, but this is what I'm calling you to do, family. What is that? It's to gather together regularly. As a people who love the word, who are a people of prayer, we love Christ. That's who we are. And we agree together. We agree on what the Bible says about God, on what the Bible says about how we live, and on what the Bible says about how we should be governed. We summarize those in our affirmation of faith, our church covenant, and our constitution. This is our agreement together that we're going to be and make disciples who do something. We proclaim the gospel, that is, to one another. The gospel is not just for lost people, it's for the church. But we do proclaim the good news of Jesus to people who don't know Christ. And we also protect the gospel through meaningful church membership. The church is comprised of only believers. Believers who agree to look out for healthy doctrine and to call out false doctrine. Not just the leaders of the church, but the church. That's our responsibility. And we are able to see when, there's, when we're walking in foul ways. And it even leads to church discipline 
in some sad, tragic issues where people are, keep running away from Jesus and won't walk in his ways. This is how we protect the gospel. But we also portray the gospel. When somebody professes faith in Jesus, they get baptized, right? Dead to sin, alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's a physical portrayal of the gospel. We also, as we will do after the sermon today, we will take the Lord's Supper. It's a way that we portray that we are still in need of Jesus' death and resurrection. We confess our sin and confess our faith. That's the Lord's Supper. And we also portray the gospel through our love for one another and our love for a lost world. Now, summary over. Let's bring it together. It's not only what you do, it's how you do it. What has God called us to do? That is, be and make disciples who proclaim the gospel, protect the gospel, and portray the gospel. I want to double-click on two of them. We're going to double-click on proclaiming the gospel and portraying the gospel specifically to a lost and dying world that doesn't know the beautiful saving grace of Jesus. That's what we're going to double-click on. We're going to drill down and ask God to show us what is our family responsibility, and that is, could be summarized, proclaim the gospel, word, portray the gospel, deed. The word and deed of the people of God to show off the love of God to a world that doesn't know Jesus. So, those are the right things to do, but it must be done with a right heart. So here's the summary sentence of where we're headed today. Jesus is supplying us with all we need to proclaim the gospel and portray the gospel to the poor, and I'm going to define that here in a second, with a certain kind of heart. A heart of poverty, a heart of compassion, and a heart of prayer. So the what do we do? We proclaim the gospel. We portray the gospel, word and deed, to a lost and dying world. But we also have to care about how we do it. And that is with a heart of poverty, a heart of compassion, and a heart of prayer. The first point will be longer to kind of set all of this up, so don't panic on me. But let's just look at it with me. We proclaim the gospel and portray the gospel, word and deed. To the poor with a heart of poverty. Let's begin verse 35. Verse 35 says this. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Hopefully you see right there, proclamation, word, healing, deed. Right? Okay, just in general, stay with me. This is an exact quote, or I should probably better say an exact repeat by Matthew from what he's already used to describe Jesus' ministry in chapter 4. Now, why is that important? Because in chapter 4, that's where Jesus' public ministry begins, and he stamps it or imprints it with this very verse, these very verses. Now, do you know where he began his ministry? It was in Galilee. That's what you read in chapter 4. Do you know where he ended his ministry? In Galilee. That's what you read in chapter 28. 
And it's in Matthew chapter 28 when you hear these all too familiar words if you've been in the church. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, all the peoples, baptizing them, portrayal, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them, word, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. And Jesus says, I'm going to uniquely be with you, supplying you with everything that you need. And lo, or behold, I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, we tie it together because Jesus wants us to see his example in some way, shape, or form is meant to be our way of living. These very verses repeated at the beginning of his ministry are meant to be connected to the end of his ministry when he gives us as the church the commission to proclaim the gospel and portray the gospel. Are you following so far? And so when you look at Jesus' example, it's not just stand in awe of, and it is also a beautiful imprint of his that he is the Messiah, but there's something we're supposed to take as it relates to how we are the church. Now, I think chapter 9 as a whole actually helps us even more. Chapter 9 as a whole, I'm just going to run massively quickly through chapter 9 to demonstrate this. Chapter 9, verses 1 to 8, talks about a paralyzed man. This is poor in the biblical sense. A man who is financially destitute because of his physical poverty, his, his inability to walk. This is how poor is used in the scriptures. It's one who is afflicted, suffering, sick, lame, paralyzed, blind, deaf, mute, all kinds of demon-possessed, all these things that somehow lead to some type of financial destitution. And Jesus has a keen eye towards those kind of people, towards the marginalized and the outcast. And this is what you'll see in Matthew chapter 9. It was a paralyzed man. And Jesus comes near, heals the man, speaks to him, and says, your sins are forgiven, we see in this one story, word and deed. Verse 18, a man of authority, some type of ruling official, he is grieving because his son, he, or he has just lost his daughter. And in all humility, he kneels down before Jesus and said, I believe you have the power to raise her from the dead. And so Jesus, seeing his faith, starts walking back to his house, eventually heals his daughter, raises her from the dead. Jesus is in and among the poor, those who are without. But while he was on his way, we read in verse, in, later on in the verses that a woman who had been bleeding for 12 years, you've got to understand, in that culture, you were unclean. So a woman bleeding for 12 years is an outcast, she's marginalized, she's vulnerable, and yet because of her faith, she just reached out and grabbed the hem of Jesus' garment, and he's like, who touched me? And he says, because of your faith, you are healed. Once again, Jesus in and among the suffering and the hurting. We read in verses 27 through 31 that Jesus passes by two blind men, and their words are, Jesus says to them or this, do you 
believe, that's faith, do you believe that I'm able to do this? They said, yes, he heals their sight. And then, verse 32, a man was mute, unable to speak, oppressed by a demon, and Jesus has the power to cast out the demon and make this one who could not speak now speak. What are we to take from all of this? These are not strung together randomly. What are we to take by this? This all leads us to our passage today. So what are we to take? Jesus intentionally walked in and among the hurting, the poor, and the marginalized. And while the miracles were a definitive, unique stamp that Jesus was the Messiah, they demonstrated, they demonstrated to the followers, to us, that we must have a keen eye towards the hurting, the marginalized, the vulnerable, the poor, following Jesus' example. That means, and all throughout church history, the church is characterized as having an eye towards, a heart for, and hands and feet in and among the poor. This is what we are known for. And that means from the womb to when babies come out of the womb, when they're vulnerable, to life after childhood into adulthood, all the suffering in between, to those who are aged and struggling. It means we care about all of life. All of the hurting, all those in financial distress, the church has always been on the front lines. Why? Well, I left out a story as I ran through Matthew chapter 9. Because sandwiched in between all of these stories is when Jesus calls the author of this book, Matthew, to himself. Anybody know Matthew's profession? Tax collector, okay? Tax collector, hated. If you've been in the church, you understand this. One thing that might be kind of further teased out of why there was hatred. Well, first of all, there was a, a, a kind of a taking more than what was needed. And so you had many people who were going poor while the tax collectors were skimming off the top, living wealthily. But the money they were collecting for Rome was also being used to oppress the very people who were giving the taxes. So you can imagine not only are you paying taxes, but then they're using that money to hurt or imprison your family. You're in physical, financial destitution. They're living high on the hog. You're not going to like these people. And Jesus is found in Matthew chapter 9, verse 9, and it says this. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Now, <laughs> when you're Jesus, which Jesus is Jesus, and he says, follow me, imagine what that had to take. That sentence, follow me, is the gospel. Because Jesus is saying, trust me enough to leave everything that you have behind and do what I ask you to do. And in that moment, Matthew says, you're better. I trust you. I surrender my life to you and I follow you. Jesus proclaiming the gospel 
to this tax collector. But it also stirred up some, ruffled some feathers. Look at verse 10. As Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to the disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick have need of a physician, right? Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now this is really interesting. And literally, the plane will land. The points will come together. Stay with me. What does he do here? He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but the sick have need of a physician. So mark that. When you think of sick, you think of, (coughs) right? You think sick, right? He uses a physical image to depict a spiritual condition, right? We all get this. He's talking in spiritual language. He's saying, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy. I desire mercy. Kindness towards the sick, the sin sick, more than just sacrificial obedience. Does that sound like how we started this sermon? Which is, he doesn't only care what you do, but how you do it. Now, he says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. There's something God is doing here. He's combining an image of physical sickness with our spiritual condition to teach us about the gospel we proclaim and who we proclaim the gospel to. He says he doesn't call the righteous. What's that mean? He doesn't call those who think in their deeds they are good enough to have acceptance. Does that make sense how he's using righteous there? He doesn't call the righteous, meaning he's not... Stepping in to save those who think they are secure in themselves and in their own works. Instead, it says he saves the sick. Who are those? It's those who are sinners, who know they cannot save themselves. Those who realize they are outcasts. Those who realize they are like the blind individual who cannot see spiritually. Those who understand they cannot hear, they cannot speak spiritually unless God comes and draws near. It's like Luke 18. I don't know if you remember the story. In the temple, the the Pharisee is there and he literally prays like this. I mean, astonishing arrogance. He prays, oh God, I'm thankful That I'm not like that guy over there in the corner. I do all of these great things. And if you look at all the great things he did, it was beyond what the law required. So he was just really proud of all that he did. And then hidden over in a corner, you could almost see head buried, the tax collector, intentional image again, over in the corner, says just these few words, Lord Have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, which one went home justified? The one in the corner. The one who saw himself 
despite all of his physical wealth, the one who saw himself as sick, as poor, as needy. Dear friends, Jesus draws near to the sick, to the needy, those who spiritually understand they are blind. This is why Matthew writes in Matthew chapter 5, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We have a task, church, to proclaim and portray word and deed, the gospel of Jesus Christ to the poor. Who are the poor? The poor is to people who understand that they are the sick ones. We proclaim to all, but it's the ones who understand they are sick. But why did Jesus walk in and among the physically poor? Why did he say, even in Matthew chapter 5, when you have visited the sick, when you've cared for the prisoner, when you've clothed the naked, you did it for me. Why did he say that's how the church is supposed to walk? Because, take this, God uses physical images to teach us spiritual realities. God uses physical images to teach us spiritual realities. He wants his people in and among suffering, hurt, blind, needy, begging people because it is a mirror back to us of our spiritual condition every time we're there. This is why it's important. Not to earn merit in order that you might get God's favor, but to portray the love of Jesus for you. He loved you in your sickness, in your poverty. And some of you were both physically poor and spiritually poor. Some of you were physically wealthy, but you realized that your wealth was not your Savior. And you bowed your heart and you became sick, spiritually poor, bankrupt of soul. And you said, I need Christ. Dear friends, I tell you, when we read, and Jesus went throughout all the cities, teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the gospel, healing every disease and every affliction, Jesus is trying to teach us about the gospel we proclaim and the lessons we are to learn as we are in and among the needy, the impoverished, the sick, and hurting. Now there are times just to kind of bring it home. What the gospel is calling people to do is to acknowledge that state of their soul. To acknowledge that they need a savior. To acknowledge what Psalm 16 says, you are the Lord and apart from you there's no good in me. This is where salvation begins. And why, why did God make the gospel talk about something bad like that? Because he actually says it's when you humble yourself and acknowledge that that's where the physician comes in. When you humble yourself in repentance, you actually enter into the presence of God in a unique and special way. When we shepherd our children, it's very easy to tell our kids not to do bad things. It is. Stop doing this. It's very easy to do that. 
It's very easy to identify when things are wrong and then to kind of come to them and, and say, here's what you've done wrong, stop doing the wrong things. And it's really easy for us to view other people as people like, you need to change, stop doing evil and start doing right. But there's one problem with that. You just cut Jesus out of the mix. The gospel has Jesus at the center. And I remember talking to one of my kids, and we had clearly laid out, this child didn't see it, clearly laid out what had gone wrong, and this child felt it, like knew that they were wrong. And you could see it, like, you could see, like, the downcastness. You could see the heaviness. You could see, like, they finally got the fact that they had done wrong. That's not the end goal. But I walk up to my child and I say, hey, lift your head up. Look at your daddy. Lift your head up. Walking around and Walking in this hurt is not what God has for you. Jesus came to us for these very moments right here. And I just want you to know how you can be set free. It's not by pretending it didn't happen and you didn't do wrong. And it's not by walking around in all of the sadness and all of the pain. It's by doing another thing. Taking your real wrongs to our real God who says, I love you, and I forgive you. And I said, you're going to be miserable if you keep trying to bear it on your shoulders. Instead, let, let's roll it off onto Jesus. And here's what it looks like. Jesus, I did wrong, and I need your forgiveness. And I need you to help me not to do whatever it was, not to do that again. And I said, be specific. Say what it was you did, and just ask him to help you. And then walk in freedom. This is the gospel we proclaim. It's not do better. And it matters, friends, how you proclaim the gospel. I pray that when you are proclaiming the gospel, you are proclaiming it with a heart of poverty. A heart that says, I too am the one who is poor. You're not looking down, you are identifying with because you have been forever changed by Christ. There's many talks we can have about the need for the church to talk about Jesus and be evangelists. That presses on your will and that's needed, but I want to press on your heart. Jesus in this chapter shows you the power that he has to convince you that you're not on a fool's errand. When you proclaim the gospel, he really can change the people that you're talking to. He does that. You're evidence of it. You're not on a fool's errand. He also shows you in a world filled with brokenness and sickness and suffering, you're that person spiritually. So stay humble. Be in and among, in word and deed, but don't be arrogant. And he wants us so that as we have a keen eye towards the poor, we would want to portray his love and be overwhelmed by his love for us. We should proclaim the gospel and portray the gospel to the poor with a heart of poverty. But we also are to proclaim it with a heart of compassion. 
And that's what Jesus says in verse 36. When he saw the crowds, he had, what's that word? Compassion for them. He had compassion for them. The word compassion is splognigthe. You like that? Splognig. It's like, I say it that way because I've always thought this word is like, it, it actually means gut. It means bowels. It means splot. It, what, why in the world am I laboring this point? Because it's a gut level love. It's a gut level love. You know what it's like when you have just felt either the bad feeling, the pit in the stomach, or that feeling of just a depth of love that supersedes other depths of love. This is a gut level love when he looks at these people. Who is he looking at? It says he's looking at the crowds. More than likely, all of them, unbelievers. Maybe a few followers out there. But when he's looking out there, how does he see them? He sees them as harassed and helpless. These words are only used here. He sees them as under attack, unable to save themselves. This is how Jesus views a lost and dying world. He's not viewing them in ways that I sometimes am tempted to view them as ignorant or one who doesn't understand the arguments, more intellectual. We can view people as annoying or messy. Jesus views them with compassion. If you just follow the word compassion throughout the New Testament, there are some remarkable places. Matthew chapter 14, you know who else he had compassion on? It was one who was sick. It says, and he saw that sick person and had compassion. You know who else he had compassion on? It was one who was hungry and faint. Matthew 15. In Luke chapter 7, there was a woman who lost her husband and now had just lost her son. Jesus looked at that situation and he had compassion. This gut level love for them. And then, very famous passage, Luke chapter 10. Anybody know what's there? The parable of the good Samaritan. That's right. The Samaritan is the the figure that's supposed to remind you of the love of God. And you know what? It says when the Samaritan saw the one who was beaten and robbed, he had compassion. And then Luke 15, very famous passage, the passage of the prodigal son. When the son rebelled against the father, traded the father in and the relationship with the father for all the father's possessions, runs away, squanders everything, and with Deep shame says, I could be a servant at my father's house rather than out here with all these squandered things. And he comes back in deep shame. And it says that the father saw the son from a long way off with compassion. I just want you to know, this is the nature of our God. He sees you with compassion. I'm reading through the New and Old Testament, halfway through Exodus right now. Some of the most comforting words were when I read, after hundreds of years of suffering, the Bible says, and God saw their affliction, and he heard their cries, and he came to them, 
and he brought them up. He remembered his covenant, and he knew them. This is what Jesus is showing us. He sees your pain. He cares about your situation. And you might say, well, why doesn't he stop it? I can't tell you the answer to all of that, but I can tell you this. He loves you. and He has a purpose for you, even in your pain. And he will never leave you because he is a savior of compassion. And those of you in this room that do not know the love of Jesus, he looks at you with compassion because you're sick, you're helpless, you're harassed. You're attacked from within. You're battling shame and guilt. And you need to know someone cares. And he calls out to you right now. Confess your inability to save yourself. And run to Jesus, the one filled with compassion. Who came to us. Died on the cross, the death we deserved. Took all of our sin on his shoulders. Rose from the dead three days later. So that if you just confess... Confess that you're sick. You aren't righteous. There's no good in you apart from Jesus. And that he alone can save you. You can be set free, made new, clean. His child. You can know he has compassion on you. It says in this passage that he saw them as sheep without a shepherd. We were singing Psalm 23 intentionally so that we as the people of God would remember our God is the great shepherd. He guides, he protects, he loves, he has compassion. Even when we're stupid, that's what sheep are, sorry. It's not a very flattering image, but it's a real one. Dear friends, I pray that you know That Jesus not only wants us to see his heart of compassion, he wants us to look at a lost and dying world with compassion. He cares about our hearts. And he wants us to look at a lost and dying world with a heart of prayer. Our job as the church is to proclaim the gospel in word, to portray the gospel in deed to the poor spiritually with a keen eye towards the physical poor, But he cares about our hearts, not just that we do the right things, but that we do it with a right heart, a heart of poverty, a heart of compassion, and a heart of prayer. Look at the last part of the verse, of the passage, verse 37. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. If I read that, here's what I think is going to come next. Okay, there's a ton of corn out there, or if you like fruit, there's a ton of strawberries over here. Tons. But the laborers are few. The next words I would expect is, so go start working. Go get the corn, go get the strawberries. What does he do? Pray. Go pray. Why does he start with prayer? What is he teaching us in this moment? That before we are laborers, we are dependent children. 
And what he wants to teach us in this moment is that we must be convinced he is the one that causes the growth. He is the one who is able to take blind eyes and make them see. We need our hearts in the right place before we go labor. And in some senses, the prayer is the labor. Because we're not only praying, which puts our hearts in the right spot, but we're praying for more laborers. Who are the laborers? The church. We're praying that God would save more and more people so that it's not just a small little group of followers of Jesus going, but that God would save more and more and that we're all going into the harvest. And so he says, pray genuinely, earnestly, desperately, really believing you are unable to do this apart from his grace. Pray. The harvest is plentiful. <laughs> well, if you read that, if the harvest is plentiful, why does it seem like a lot of hard work? Why does it not seem so plentiful sometimes? I read in Acts, and what's happening in Acts? Gospel is proclaimed, thousands come to faith in Jesus. That's a plentiful harvest. Why doesn't that happen to me when I go into my neighborhood? And I talk to people about the wonderful love of Jesus and how he has compassion upon them and how he cares about their suffering. If they repent of their sin and follow him, they can walk in a new life, be a part of a new community. And it's like it hits a wall. Why is that? Well, we see examples in the New Testament. Examples that Jesus, after laboring for three years, We've only got 120 at the end of the day that are up in that upper room. It's a small number. We also know that some of the churches all throughout the book of Acts, they didn't grow to massive churches, and some of them even grew to extinction. They didn't stick around. You know what did stick around? The people's faith. The gospel was planted. More churches were planted. Here's the point. God will save people through the faithful proclamation of the word and through the portrayal of the gospel in deeds of justice and mercy. He will save people. We cannot be in charge of the outcome, but we can be in charge, responsible, faithful, and doing what he calls us to do, proclaiming the gospel, portraying the gospel with a heart of poverty and compassion and prayer. And so what does it look like, friends? Prayer puts the heart where it needs to be. It says, one waters, one plants, one waters, but who causes the growth? The Lord causes the growth. That's what prayer says. And so God must move so that there are more laborers. And my prayer is that bedtime would be filled with prayers for lost children because lost children need the gospel. Moms, dads, that is the front lines of gospel ministry, proclaiming the gospel week in and week out, day in and day out. To your kids. That's not secondary. It's precious. It is what faithfulness looks like. 
May bedtime be filled with prayers for lost children. May our dinner tables be filled with prayers for lost family members. May community groups be filled with uniting, praying together for for neighbors that don't know Jesus. May we say specifically people that we're burdened for, people that we love, and start praying together. May our corporate gatherings be filled with prayers for God to save people in our city. May our individual and corporate displays of love, deeds of mercy and justice be proceeded by, filled with in the moment, and followed by hearts of prayer. Because we would be convinced God must show up to save. If you're not a follower of Jesus in this room, I've prayed for you. I've prayed that God in his kindness would move in this moment and you would feel like you are spiritually sick in need of a Savior. That you would know that he loved you so much he gave his only son for you. And that Jesus rose from the grave, the power to change your life. In church, that's not just good news for them. It's good news for us every single day. I pray that you remember every single day your heart of poverty. The Lord draws near to the contrite and those who tremble at his word. I pray that you would rehearse every single day God's compassion towards you so that you would have a compassionate heart towards others. I pray that we will be characterized as a church, as a prayerful people. As we are proclaiming Jesus, we must be a people who speak the gospel in all that we do and portray the gospel so that people will be saved and Jesus gets glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these days that we have had to reflect upon your love for us, upon your patience with us, upon just the fact that if you are for us, who can be against us? And I ask right now, God, that you would press upon our hearts the privilege to speak of Jesus where we go. I ask in these moments of reflection that, God, you would bring names to mind of people that we are burdened with, and right now we would ask for opportunities to talk about Jesus with them, to listen to people's stories, to help them to know that they're not a project, but they are a relationship that we want to foster, and we want them to know the love of Jesus that so changed our lives. Father, I ask that you would bring the right uh, opportunities, that you would bring people's names to our minds, and you would give us the right heart as we go. And so, Father, as As we come together to take this Lord's Supper together, I just ask that you would use this portrayal of the gospel to get our hearts where they need to be. May this be a proclamation, a confession, that we are sinners, impoverished of soul, that you have had compassion upon us. And may we just call out and confess our faith in you. And praise you in prayer for your love for us.